0: A tremendous message, amen. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, a barber in a small town was uh, a barber in a small town was busy cutting hair one day when one of the local police officers walked in to get a haircut. And uh, the barber, he was feeling rather generous that day, and so he said to the police officer, he said, "Well." You know, since you do such a good job protecting us, watching over us, today's haircut, on the house, free. The police officer, he appreciated that, of course, he was very thankful about it, and the next day, when the barber showed up at his shop, there was a dozen donuts waiting for him. In walks a local florist, and the local florist was very civic-minded, and the barber Begins to tell him how much he appreciates all the work that he's done around the town and just how he planted all the bushes and the, the flowers to make the town really look nice. And he was just very thankful for him, for him and all the work that he did. So he said, you know what? Haircuts on the house. It's on me. Man, I mean, the next day the barber shows up at his shop and there's a dozen flowers waiting for him. In walks the local preacher. The barber tells him, Yeah, he says to him, he says, you know... I'm feeling rather generous today, uh, uh, preacher, and, you know, I just want you to know, I really appreciate all your hard work and how you've been working with these children, how you take care of the needs of the people, and so, you know what? It's on me, free, on the house. The next morning, the barber shows up at his shop, there's a dozen preachers waiting there for him. Yeah, now that's true, too. That's a true story right there. Not the first two parts, just the last one. Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. <laughs> yeah, buddy, I'll tell you. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> again, we're just going to use this as a kickoff to our our, our our series, of course, tonight, a continuing series. And again, we're dealing with keys to the Bible. We're talking about New Testament survey, Brother Cavanaugh. Remember this morning he said we were in the Old Testament? But anyway, okay, well, I remember. He did come to me later and said, we're in the New Testament, aren't we, preacher? I went, but anyway, he, that's okay. He, he's, all right. he's all right. So anyway, we are in the New Testament. And again, we started with that New Testament just uh, a week ago. And so today we're going to continue with that, all right? Part two of that. And so Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we simply read, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Again, we have this tremendous question, and uh, it's such an important question. In the last lesson, of course, we addressed the Gospels. We talked about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We spent the majority of our time in the book of Matthew. We noted and said that Matthew was a transitional book that bridged the gap between the Old and the New Testament, and it also revealed the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and His ministry. Today we want to pick up with the book of Acts, and we want to start there and continue on with our New Testament. And so, <clears throat> the book of Acts is another transitional book in the Bible. It's one of the three transitional books that we'll deal with through the course of time here, but we deal with Matthew, you deal, of course, with the book of Acts, and then Hebrews. So, just like Matthew and Hebrews, Acts is a transitional book. And it's a book that must be understood. You've got to be very careful in the book of Acts, just like you are in Matthew. Uh, the damage that's been done as a result of of misapplying this particular book of the Bible by religion is astounding. It's astounding. Matter of fact, of all of Satan's devices, I mean, you could take all the bars in town, you could take you know, all of the, um, the wickedness and the evil devices of Satan and almost put them all together, you probably wouldn't come up with an, as many people going to hell over all those combined as you do simply doctrine misapplied out of the book of Acts. And through religion. <clears throat> of all Satan's devices, there's none other so destructive as religion. It's, it's, it's astounding. Now, again, let religion, let a religion have some bad doctrine. But then let that religion and its doctrine hang around for 100, 200 years. Maybe even a thousand or more. And literally, there are millions and millions of people dying and going to hell as a result of it. Millions. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 14, the Bible says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Basically what we find then is that Jesus is being very clear. False religious leaders will receive the greater damnation. We learn that there is a greater damnation. That that hell is not equal That there is a level, if you will. And some people don't want to come to that conclusion, but why would he say the greater damnation? Obviously, their punishment will be greater because their sin is greater and that numerous, even millions, have been deceived and ultimately going to hell. How important is it that we rightly divide the word of truth in? How how valuable and how vital is it that we are careful to Put the divisions where they belong so that we don't misappropriate Scripture. Now, the Acts of the Apostles is probably the most important book of the entire Bible for Christians to understand. And it has to be understood. Because in the end, you're going to mess up everything if you don't get this one straight. Ultimately, if you don't understand Acts, then you're going to have a real difficult time maybe with understanding your salvation even. It's very important. Now again, obviously in the New Testament the book of Acts is paramount, of course. It's pivotal, it's very it's 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 very pertinent, it's very uh, important that we get this nailed down. <clears throat> so, we got to handle Acts very carefully. And so we're going to take a little bit of time today and we're going to talk about the book of Acts. That's the only book we're going to address today, and we're going to see what we can learn from it and try to understand it a little bit as we take a walk again through history. And as we consider uh, the, the uh, acts of the apostles and, uh, you know, this kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and it's so imperative, it's so important we get this nailed down. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started, all right? Father in heaven, we want to thank you again for just the opportunity that we have to be here tonight. Thank you for these that have gathered that have a heart and a desire, Father, to glean from your word. May they not be disappointed. May our hearts truly be encouraged tonight. May we be instructed. May we be inspired even. Lord, we need you today. May you help the Word of God to be unfolded in a way that is very carefully handled, but also very clearly seen. Lord, again, we thank you for just your Son and for our salvation. Lord, just for the privilege it is to be called the children of God, the sons of God. But Lord, we want to be able to handle your Word properly. We want to be able to encourage others by it. Lord, it's not enough just to have the truths ourselves. Help us to understand these truths that we may share them with others. Now, Father, again, bless us. Fill me with your Spirit. Lord, may you just help me to be your mouthpiece tonight. Be with your people. And again, Lord, anoint our ears that we may hear with spiritual ears. we well, thank you for what you will accomplish this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Now, we talk about the Acts of the Apostles. As we said, this is another transitional book in the Bible. Just like Acts, just like Hebrews. The most important thing to remember about the book of Acts is that it is not a doctrinal statement of church theology. It's not a doctrinal statement of church theology. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, it's a historical account of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts is a historical book, not a doctrinal book. You have to be careful when you deal with Acts because there's a number of wonderful principles and there's some tremendous truths bound in that book. But you have to be careful that you don't put too much weight on it when it comes to church doctrine. You have to be very careful. Because, see, it's not a doctrinal statement of church theology. So, the name of the book is the Acts of the Apostles. It's because it's historical. It's telling us about their acts. The most important application in the book of Acts is historical application. Because that's what it was written for. It's a historical account documenting some things. It's documenting the transition of some things. First of all, it's documenting the transition of law to grace or Jewish Old Testament structure to the New Testament church age where, of course, Jesus Christ is going to pursue um, the Jew and Gentile as one. they will become one. So we're moving from law to grace or from Old Testament structure, New Testament church age. That's important. Not only that, but it's documenting the transition from God dealing with a nation, once again, to God dealing with individuals. He's going from a nation now to individuals. We talked about that in the book of Matthew. It's also documenting the transition from God dealing primarily with Jews to primarily dealing with Gentiles. It's also an important book of transition Concerning Peter's ministry to the Jews in chapters 1 through 12 to Paul's ministry to the Gentiles in chapter 13 through 28. So we see all of these transitions taking place here in the book of Acts. And that's why the historical application of the books of Acts is so vital and so important. Now, before you can determine where the doctrinal application fits, okay, we start talking about doctrinal, historical, and uh and um, inspirational before you can determine where the doctrinal application fits you must determine exactly where you are in the transition or you're going to misapply the doctrine so you got to know where you're at in the transition of going from jew to gentile from law to grace from peter to paul You got to understand those things because if you start to apply doctrinal truths and you're in the wrong place, you can misappropriate or misapply the truth now and get all messed up. Now, someone may say, well, the whole Bible's for us, right? Well, it's for us, but it's not written to us. Someone says, well, I think we should be able to take anything from anywhere and and make it apply to us. Well, that's just, that's ludicrous because God says that we're to rightly divide the word of truth. You know, so there is an element of division here, and the book of Acts is one of those transitional books. So if you're going to understand doctrine at any point, you have to understand where you're at in the transition. So let's go ahead, first of all, and kind of review slightly, or do an overview again of our Old Testament. It's just going to be very quickly, but remember again the main theme or storyline of the Bible. Does anybody remember what it is? Does anybody remember? Everybody's really excited about jumping on that. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, that's correct. The second coming of Jesus Christ establishes kingdom, basically. He's going to establish a kingdom. Remember we said that the greatest day on God's calendar wasn't the day Christ died, but it'll be the day that He rules and reigns as He was meant to, when He rightfully de- receives what is His rightfully His, and that's the throne. And so we see that this is about a king and a kingdom. That's what the Bible's about. And so, it begins with Adam, we noted. And Adam, he has both kingdoms, we said. The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. There is a difference, as we noted. The next, from there, it goes to Noah and to his descendants. Ultimately, to Abraham, then to Isaac and Jacob. And from there, Jacob passes it on to Judah, we saw. And then, all the way on through to Moses and to Joshua. Now, we understand that the kingdom of God was lost when Adam fell, but that kingdom of heaven had continued through with all of these men right on through. And ultimately, we go through the judges there, and God is uh, providing a structure. God's preparing a people. God's readying a kingdom because he's getting ready to put the structure right in place. We see that coming because next thing we know after the judges is we have a kingdom that's under the kings now. Literally, we're going to see the greatest picture in all the Bible of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ coming up. So we have Paul, or excuse, excuse me, we have Saul, who was the bad king, of course. Then we saw David, who was a good king. Then, of course, Solomon shows up on the scene, and that's where we see this tremendous picture, unbelievable picture of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, from there, of course, it goes from kings to kings and different uh, uh, households, so forth, of the, of the king. It's passed down until finally it comes to a fellow by the name of Jaconia. And we talked about Jaconia. His name was changed to Coniah because he received a curse because he was so wicked. And God said, no more. No seed from you. Nobody from your family will ever reign on the throne. And as a result of that, it goes to... Then we turn over here. We end up at Zedekiah. Zedekiah is just basically a puppet king. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar shows up in town and says, who do you think you are? Well, I'm the king. No, you're not. You're a nobody. He ends up uh, killing his children in front of his eyes. And then he takes his eyes out. And boom, at that point, 606 B.C., we see them going into captivity. And the times of the Gentiles begins. Now there's no kingdom on earth now. And so we see now that uh, the Old Testament is pretty much summarized at that point. The next person we find at that, after that is who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist shows up now. And of course we find him in the book of Matthew. And John the Baptist shows up and then he's six months ahead of Christ, by the way. And uh, he begins to, you know, have a voice crying in the wilderness. He's talking about a coming king and his kingdom. He's trying to prepare the Jew now for the king and the kingdom. Then Jesus himself shows up. And, of course, Jesus is a double king. He's he's called the king of the Jews, and he's also called the son of God. And he's the only man since Adam who's the king over both kingdoms. Fortunately for us, he's not going to lose the kingdoms, though. He don't lose the kingdoms like Adam did. When Jesus shows up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John we find that he and his disciples begin to preach a kingdom message. They're talking about the kingdom of heaven again. And that's why in the Gospels, in the early part of the book of Acts even, the only people that are ministered to are Jews. You don't see Gentiles being dealt with. You ever wonder why Jesus said, go to to the Jews, you know? And he talks to that woman. She says, oh, but uh, if I could just have the crumbs that fall from the master's table. He said, D- does, you know, does the um, uh, good man give his crumbs to dogs? You're a Gentile, you're a dog. Man, I'm ministering to the, the Jew here. I don't got time for you Gentiles. We're trying to get a kingdom established. You ever wonder? That's what's going on now. He's not dealing with Gentiles. All through the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even into Acts, you're going to see that his emphasis, his primary focus is solely on the Jew. And the Jews who's being addressed and dealt with. Now, <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 12, we came to a place where we saw that Israel committed what was often referred to as the unpardonable sin. We know that they attributed the miracles of Christ to the power of Satan. And re- basically, what they had done was they rejected Christ in the kingdom at that point, that was their crime. And in chapter 13, the teaching of the kingdom goes into a series of what's called parables. We noted that they, we should be, they should probably be called terribles. Now, we find ultimately in the Word of God that the Jews have three chances or had three chances to get the kingdom back in the New Testament. Three chances. The first one was John the Baptist. John the Baptist came preaching in Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3. He came preaching the kingdom of heaven and, of course, the Jews, they didn't like his preaching a whole lot. They weren't real impressed with it. So what they do? They killed him. Then the next chance was Jesus himself. He shows up on the scene saying, I am the Messiah. I'm the promised one. I'm the one that's to rule and reign on the throne of David. And of course, they killed him too. Wanted nothing to do with him. Now, again, remember, it's interesting to note this, but remember how Jesus being rejected and ultimately crucified, he hangs on the cross and he makes this statement. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, you remember that, right? And then that's a wonderful statement, you know, and we're excited about that. And that's good. And we ought to be excited about that. But a lot of people think that Jesus was just being really nice to forgive the world for doing him wrong. But that's not the truth. He wasn't particularly concerned about the world at that moment. You say, what? Absolutely. I want you to notice his prayer before his betrayal, right before his betrayal in chapter 17. Look at chapter 17, John 17, verse 9. Notice what Jesus prays here, even in this prayer, prior to his betrayal. Remember, we're still dealing with a king and a kingdom. In John chapter 17, verse 9, we read, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Wow. You don't pray for the world? You don't pray for. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're supposed to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Yes, exactly. But remember who that message was preached to the Jew. We borrow it because it does apply, because as we look at the, uh, the Apostle Paul's writings, we recognize and see that that principle and that truth is evident even in our salvation. However, the fact is today is that when he hung on that cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, what he was really saying was, these Jews don't understand that they're killing the Messiah, and they're going to lose the kingdom. I forgive them, Lord. I forgive them, Father. So God honored the Lord's request as he hung there on Calvary. And although the Jews did kill Jesus Christ, they were given one more chance for the kingdom. So now we've gone through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John now. We've already re- reviewed and summarized. Now, as we already mentioned, John the Baptist was their first chance for the kingdom. Strike one, they kill it. Jesus Christ was their second chance. Strike two, he's out. But on the cross, He forgave them, and they got one more chance. Because you know, you always get three strikes, and then you're out. It's funny how things revolve around the Word of God, if you really look at it. So, what about this third chance? It's found in the early uh, part of the book of Acts. And so, let's turn to the book of Acts, if you're not already there, which you probably are, because you're in Acts chapter 1. But look at verse 3. We're going to start reading in, in Acts. We're going to take a few minutes and go through Acts now. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, notice what it says. To whom also he shewed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days, talking of Christ, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He's talking to them, sharing with them, instructing them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. In verse 3 again, he's talking to his disciples about this spiritual kingdom. But look in verse 6 again, where we started off tonight. And when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Chapter 1, verse 6 is the theme of the book of Acts. That's the real question. That's the real issue. This is the question around which the entire book of Acts is built, as well as the entire New Testament, really. Now, those disciples were looking for Jesus to what? Restore a visible, physical, literal kingdom, just like it was back in the book of Kings through Chronicles. The first few chapters of Acts have nothing to do with church-age Christians. They're not there. Someone says, you're nuts. Just follow now. Let's just slow down and watch what's going on here in the book of Acts. Again, the first few chapters of Acts have nothing to do with church-age Christians. Talking about exactly like we function and operate today. There is, however, a group of Jews that are doing some things. Number one, they're preaching a second-coming message. They're preaching a second-coming message. They're getting a bunch of other Jews saved. A bunch of Jews are getting saved. All, congreg- uh, all congregating, all of these Jews are congregating in Jerusalem in a communal church. They're, they're coming together. Remember how they're selling all their goods? They're coming together. As a Almost like you think, wow, do we have to live in communes? I mean, we have to pool our resources? We have to live together? And Well, that's what was going on in the early book of Acts, wasn't it? Oh, let's go ahead and pull our doctrine from there. Sell all your homes and give the money to the church and I'll distribute it as I see necessary. That's what they did to the apostles. They started selling properties and lands and they brought them to the apostles and said, here, distribute them as necessary and needed. And what they did is they gave from the rich to the poor. Isn't that amazing? People that had no food were getting food because people that had food were giving theirs for them. I'm just saying it was communal. It was different. It's a totally different system in the early part of the book of Acts. So they're preaching a second coming message. They're getting a bunch of other Jews saved. All, the con- all of them are congregating in Jerusalem in a communal church. And then number four, they're getting ready for what? The return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're getting ready for So the disciples asked the question in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 early on, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Good question, guys. In our last lesson, we made that very clear. It was very valid, very reasonable question. However, notice that Jesus doesn't give them a specific answer. Look, if you will, in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 now. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the othermost part of the earth. Now again, notice what he's doing. There's principles there. There are practical principles that we need to adhere to. In the book of Ephesians, we are to be filled with the Spirit that we fulfill, don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're to walk in the spirit, not fulfill the lust of flesh. We understand that. And we see where the spirit of God is received. And and we see how he comes and lives and moves into our life. We understand that. But notice again, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father has put in his own hands. Very clearly, it's not for you to know those things. What specifically? The times and the seasons. Individual words are very important in the Bible. You got to watch them carefully. And I want you to note the very specific words that the Lord Jesus uses. Again, times and seasons. On the other hand, look at what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica. If you have your Bible, look over there in 1 Thessalonians. Keep your hand in Acts because we're going right back. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. Notice what he says here. He goes on to say to them, "But of the times and the what? Huh? Wait. I, just earlier he's talking about times and seasons, in the book of Acts, chapter one, verse six. But notice what he's going to say to these guys now. Paul the apostle speaking now to the church at Thessalonia, uh, the Thessalonians now. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Why?" For yourselves know perfectly that that day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Why do I have to write to you about this? You understand it. You know what's going on. What? Earlier in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, he says, listen, guys, guys, listen, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but now something's changed. In 1 Thessalonians, he's going, I don't even need to write to you because you got it handled. You understand it. You know what's going on. Huh. Isn't that interesting? In 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see that again, the Apostle Paul has a different message than Jesus had early on. Why is it different? Because something changed. There's a difference. The Lord is basically saying to these disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, He's saying, Fellas, there's a condition being placed on this answer. I can't go into details right now, but it's not for you to know the times and seasons because I'm waiting on whether or not you, the Jews, will accept me as Messiah and the kingdom will be established or not. So I I, I don't know. It's not for you to know that. We're holding off. We still got something that's going on here, and that condition is being placed on this answer. That's kind of interesting to me. You're going to restore that kingdom, Jesus? Well, it depends on what the nation of Israel does with their last chance. So we'll see. Can't tell you for sure. Because it's not in my hands. By Thessalonians, by Thessalonica now, when he speaks to Thessalonians, that one's already been determined. It's been handled, okay? So, in Acts chapter 2 now, we move on, and we've got Peter. He delivers that famous Pentecost message. And, of course, that famous message includes none other than Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Why don't you turn over there? What a tremendous passage, right? More people have gone to hell over this one, probably, than almost any other verse. In Acts chapter 2, Peter delivered that famous message. But notice what it says. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you what. There's been a number of preachers that have stumbled and fumbled and have tried to somehow overcome that verse and make it say something that probably it doesn't say. Because we're all freaking out because baptism's been there somewhere. Where's that fit into our salvation? It doesn't fit into our salvation, but they needed it. He's dealing with Jews. Not dealing with the church like us right now. There's still a transition that's going to take place. We're going to note that. But hold on. Watch what's happening here. I mean, thousands of people have received this verse as a recipe for Gentile salvation. This is how you deal with it. We go to the Church of Christ says, if you don't get saved and baptized, you go to hell. Right. And then there's a whole other sect that says, you've got to even be baptized as a baby or you go to hell. What? So they've tied baptism with salvation. How would they ever get that? Because the Bible says it. Someone says, well, that's spiritual baptism there. Really? What was John doing over there when he was trying to prepare the people for Jesus and the kingdom? Baptizing them. That wasn't spiritual baptism. All I'm saying is is that we sometimes try to make the Bible say what we want it to say because it fits our theology. But the fact is, is that the Bible says what it says and it's okay to receive it just like it says it. But if you don't rightly divide it, you're going to fall right off the end of a cliff. Notice what it says in verse 36. You can't make this a recipe for Gentile salvation, first of all, because there's not one Gentile in the entire audience. Do you realize that? Look at this. Look at verse 36. Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Who's he talking to? The Jews. He's not talking to Gentiles in the least. He's talking to Jews. That's all he's dealing with here. The house of Israel. Now, look at verse 37, the response, their response. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Men and brethren, what shall we do as a result of this reality? That we have crucified Jesus Christ. There's not one person here asking how to be saved in Acts chapter 2 verse 37. You see it? I don't see Acts chapter 16 yet. What must I do to be saved? I don't see that here. All I see is a bunch of people saying to themselves, well, what are we supposed to do in light of the fact that we crucified Him? What shall we do? So Peter goes on to tell them in verse what? 38. He's going to tell this group of the house of Israel what they're supposed to do as a result of the fact that they crucified Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and rejected Him. Here you go, guys. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, in the verses that follow that one, we're going to see that there are some Jews that are doing exactly what Peter told them to do. There are some that did that. And we have some tremendous truths there. And we look at that passage, and we can draw out truths for even the church today. I understand all that. But we still have to be careful when we go through the book of Acts to understand who's really being addressed and dealt with. It's the Jew here. In the next few chapters... We're going to see God sending out a group of preachers. Apostles, they're called. They're headed up by who? Peter. Now, these guys didn't go to the Gentiles. Instead, they went to the Jews. And they say, You crucified the Messiah. Don't you understand that? Don't you get it? And what were they trying to do? They were trying to convert Jews. Why? So they could get what? The kingdom. They're still thinking about that question in Acts 1-6. We have got to get the kingdom established. Jesus Christ promised to come and establish the kingdom to elevate and magnify Israel again over all the nations. We want the kingdom. And so they're trying to do exactly what they're told to do. Reach every Jew they possibly could and get them to understand it's time to repent and turn to Jesus and understand He's Messiah. Because He'll not come back unless we get right as a nation. Now again, take the time whenever you get a chance and read through the messages in Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5. And notice that they're second coming messages. They're preached in Jerusalem to who? Jews. Nobody's rushing out trying to reach a Gentile. Nobody's starting a bus ministry. Nobody's doing any of those things. I mean, what we've got here is Jews trying to reach Jews. But Israel's last chance is coming up. In Acts chapter 6, a man by the name of Stephen, he's picked as a deacon of the church. And then in Acts chapter 7, he preaches to the leaders of the corporate nation of Israel. Remember, as I told you last week, that Israel makes decisions based on their leadership. God views the whole. It's not individual. He's dealing with nations. So therefore, the leaders of the nation make decisions on behalf of the entire nation. And so here's Stephen now preaching to the corporate nation of Israel, to their leaders. When Stephen preaches this message, there's not one Gentile in the audience. Look at what he said in Acts chapter 7. And if there was, he snuck in and nobody was aware he was there. Because look what he says. And he said, Men... Brethren and fathers. That's interesting. So he speaks to his people. He says, hearken. He's talking to Jews again. He's talking to Jews. He's Jewish. Those are his brethren. His, his fathers in the faith. These are his people. He goes right on, right from there now, to mention who? Abraham. And we know that Abraham is. I mean, everybody in the world knows Abraham. He's the first Jew. So he starts right there with Abraham. Matter of fact, he begins now, he talks about Israel going down to Egypt in verses 9 through 16. He then turns around in verses 17 through 36. He recounts how Moses delivered the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. Stephen doesn't make one mention of receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord trusting his shed blood in the passage you don't see it there it's not there if it's if, if he's trying to get people saved the way we do if it's not a matter of the kingdom why is he not talking about the fact you must receive Christ by faith plus or minus no works there's no need for baptism it's simply Christ alone he's talking about Israel he's dealing with a, the, the, the nation of Israel here so he preaches a second coming message to the leaders. Of the nation of Israel. And he just tears those leaders apart. Preaching right through the entire Old Testament. He preaches everything about the nation of Israel. From Abraham clear up to Jesus Christ. Right on through. He just cleans their clocks. Look at verse 48 through 50 now of Acts chapter 7. Notice how he deals with this. In Acts chapter 7 verse 48 through 50 he says, How be it the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands... As saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hands made all these things? Think about Israel. What are they doing? They've got a temple, and God God's supposed to dwell there, in the temple. As a matter of fact, He did in the Old Testament. what happened on calvary what took place when jesus christ died on the cross that day and gave up the ghost the bible tells us that the veil of the temple was rent or torn into two pieces what are these jews doing now you've got some priests running back to the temple after it was torn and sewing it back together because they want to continue with their worship as it was and they must have privacy back in the Holy of Holies. No one's allowed back there, or they'll die in the presence of God unless they're the, the high priest and they've been cleansed and gone through the formalities of the law. That's a rough message he's preaching now. Look at verse 51. He goes on to say, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Fathers did? There's no Gentile here. There's still Jews. That's all he's dealing with here. Notice he goes on. I mean, this is quite a message now. Look at the next verse. Acts chapter 7, verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which shewed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. He says, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? He's talking now about Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those that died as a result of the people of God rejecting the message God sent and the messenger he sent. Again, there's nothing about the church in here. Stephen is talking to the nation of Israel. Now he goes on to say, and they have slain them which should be of the coming of the just One." Guess who the just one is? It's Jesus Christ. Stephen accused them of murdering Jesus Christ. He didn't make too many friends that day, did he? Look at what happens next as the leaders of the nation respond to his message. (laughs) This is something here. Acts 7, 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. What's that really means? Well, it means they bit him. Can you imagine that? I mean, swap and spit? Everybody biting on him? Excuse me, can I find a spot you haven't bit yet? No, they were going crazy. They were biting on him. I mean, can you imagine this? Now we arrive at a very interesting passage. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. But he, referring to Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Wow. Isn't that awesome? I'd like to see that when I die, wouldn't you? But I won't. You say, what do you mean? Well, think about it for a minute. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Take your Bible, look over the book of Hebrews. Let's run through it. Hebrews chapter 1, let's start there, verse 3. The Bible says, Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and of holding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down. Hold on. Hebrews 8, 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, verse chapter 8, verse 1, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's set on the right hand. Of the throne. Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, after he had suffered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down. You say, I know, but when a, when a saint dies, he stands to receive them. In all those passages, he's seated. And on the onset of that thought, one might conclude, oh yeah, okay, Jesus is so kind, he's so considerate of his saints, especially those that are being martyred, like Stephen, that he stands to receive them into his presence. But the Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. Then that means if he's standing for Stephen, he'd have to stand for every one of us who goes in. And if that's the case, he would do... I mean, think about how many saints die every day. How many saints die every hour? How many saints die every second? Jesus would never be seated as the Bible tells us he is. He'd be standing constantly because I'm there no respecter of persons. I'd be stand, If he stands for Stephen, he stands for me. So why was he standing then? If this is unusual, if this is not the norm, if Jesus is normally seated at the right hand of the Father, then why is he standing then when Stephen... Is martyred. <clears throat> Why is that? See, Jesus wasn't standing up to welcome Stephen home. But rather, he was waiting to see if Israel would do what they would do with their last chance. They're going to accept the message of Stephen? They're going to repent of their sin, of crucifying the Savior. Are they going to receive him now as Messiah? Are they willing to accept him today? Or will they not? Jesus his standard going, okay, this is your third chance, boys. Get it right. Get it right. I'm ready to take the throne. I'm ready to come down right now. Someone says, no, that's impossible. I got you, preacher. Because I know that the Gentiles had to be saved before the kingdom's established. You forgot a very important point then. You forgot there was no New Testament written yet. There was only Old Testament prophecy. And the fact is, is that all the Old Testament prophecies were in place. The Jews were in their homeland. The Antichrist, Judas, was already in the bottomless pit. And the right nation, Rome, had already ascended to power. They had only to receive the message and Daniel's 70th week would have gone into effect. Every condition was met. Not one Old Testament verse, not one Old Testament prophecy would have been violated if he have came back at that time. Historically, there was no New Testament written at that time. All they had, of course, was the Old Testament prophecies of which they concerned the return and the coming of Jesus Christ could see it. You say, but there was Old Testament prophecies that go toward that. Yeah, there are. There's dual meanings to every prophecy, but their decision would have determined whether or not he'd established the kingdom. Could Gentiles have been saved? Absolutely. Why? Because Daniel's 70th week includes multitudes of multitudes being saved, according to Revelation chapter 7. Yes, there could have been people saved during that, that period of time. There would have been seven years, just like there's going to be a seven-year tribulation now. He could have came back. Could have established the kingdom. He could have kicked in that 70th week. Things would have started moving once again. So they kill Stephen. They lost their third chance, and at that point, the kingdom of heaven is gone. The only kingdom that's left is what? The kingdom of God now. In the Old Testament, there was only one kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. In the New Testament, there's only one kingdom but it's the kingdom of God now. I want you to know the transition that takes place. At this point, we're going to see God go from the Jew to the Gentile. And it's a very clear transition that takes place in the book of Acts. Look at you in Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. It's important to understand that Samaria was a, a, a city that was founded based on a relationship between Jews and the uh, Assyrians. There, there was a group that came together, they became Samaritans, and basically they were, they were half Jew, half Gentile. And the transition's now beginning. Philip preaches in Samaria. In Acts chapter 8, verse 12, when they believed Philip's preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. We're seeing a transition. There was nobody dealing with any Gentiles. Now, all of a sudden, we've got Philip being sent to Samaritans who are half Gentile, half Jew. It's also interesting to note that it was at that time also that the church received a tremendous persecution and they were forced away from Jerusalem and had to go out into other lands now. All after the stoning of Stephen. Notice they're preaching the kingdom of God here in Acts 8, 12. The kingdom of heaven's gone. In Acts 8, verse 27 through 38, we don't have time to read it all, but God, He reaches out to the backside of the desert. And, of course, we know that, that Philip sent there, and he has the opportunity of leading an Ethiopian eunuch, a black man, the first man saved in the Bible, exactly the way you and I are. It's interesting. It's interesting. What does hinder me to be baptized? Do you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? You can be baptized. Oh, I believe. Let's get baptized. No baptism necessary, not even an inkling of it. Faith in Christ alone. Then baptism came. That's exactly how you and I are baptized. At least that's the first place where it's described so clearly and made clear to us. Then in Acts chapter 9, Paul gets saved. The Apostle Paul, we call him Saul early on in Acts chapter 9. He is ultimately what would be called the Apostle to the Gentiles. The Word of God calls him that. God sends Ananias to see Paul. And look what he tells Ananias in Acts chapter 9 verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. But I want you to notice something very interesting. Notice the first ones that are listed there. Not Jews, Gentiles. There's a transition taking place. Things are moving. The focus is moving from the Jew to the Gentile now. Notice what's happening here in Acts chapter 10. Now we have a man by the name of Cornelius that gets saved. Peter's up on the roof there, and he sees this this, um, vision, and, and ultimately he sees all these animals, and he goes, oh, you know, and the Lord says, eat, eat, Peter. And he said, I can't, I can't eat that. I mean, that's unclean, that's unclean. He says, no, no, it's not unclean. No, go ahead and eat that. If I made it, it's okay, go ahead. Well, that went totally against Jewish law. But notice... Even peter he's freaking out man. I mean he's flipping he's like, are you kidding me? I can't eat that that's unclean man The lord's like no, it's not it's good good to go There's a transition taking place now Taking place And all of a sudden he sends him to cornelius Remember who had the keys of the kingdom? The keys of the kingdom aren't some supernatural little thing where he decides who goes to heaven who goes to hell The keys were unlocking the doors not only from the jew to the gentile now He had the keys of the kingdom. He took those keys and he said, guess what, Jews? You want the kingdom? It's yours. But also, guess what? You've rejected it. Let me open it up to the Gentile. In Acts chapter 11 then, immediately following a Gentile. We're talking about Cornelius was an Italian centurion. He was all Gentile. We went from the Jews after the death of Stephen, we see Philip, who's going to Samaritans, or half Jew, half, half uh, Gentile. Now, all of a sudden, Cornelius chapter 10, after, after, mind you, the, the, the salvation of Paul, who would be the apostle to the Gentiles, Cornelius, a Gentile centurion, is being saved. Wow, what a transition is taking place in the book of Acts. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 11. The word Christian appears for the first time in the Bible there. Interesting, isn't it? After we see transition from Jew to Gentile, boom, all of a sudden this name pops up. And remember what we learned earlier that the, about the importance of the law of first mention. It has a significant truth to it. Acts 11:26. and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were, first, were called Christians first in Antioch. You know where Antioch is? It's in Syria. You know what that is? A Gentile city. In Acts chapter 13, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, makes his first missionary journey into Asia Minor. That's Gentile territory. Again, we said that we're going to see a transition also from Peter's ministry, chapter 1, chapter 12, to the Jew, to now Paul's ministry, chapter 13, 28. Notice what's going on now. The apostle to the Gentiles going to the Gentiles. From this point on, the kingdom of heaven is never mentioned again in the book of Acts. Right. Never mentioned. No one in Jerusalem gets healed after Acts chapter 7. That's an interesting truth. and are not getting healed. See, the Jew requires a sign. You're going to see that as you move along in the book of Acts, there will be signs, but there will always be for a purpose to prove to a Jew now that a Gentile can be saved. There's always a Jew around when somebody's getting, you know, miraculously healed or tongues are being used. Always a Jew around because the Jew requires a sign. But you'll see that in Jerusalem, there's no healings taking place now after Acts 7. At least nothing recorded. Now, it's the kingdom of God because the kingdom of heavens went out officially at the death of Stephen. This is what we see in the book of Acts, this transition taking place. Matthew brings you from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Acts brings you from the Jew to the Gentile. That's the real reason for the book of Acts. It's very important to understand this. It is a historical account of God taking a ministry that was directed at the Jew and ultimately we see Him directing it primarily to the Gentile. Therefore, we can never, under any circumstances, come to the Book of Acts with any other thought in our mind than that. You can't go there going, "I'm going to learn how to get saved in the Book of Acts." You better be real careful with that. You can support salvation there, man. Run to Acts chapter 16. You see it, boy. It's plain as day. You see the Philip. You see the uh, 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 Philip, man. That Ethiopian eunuch. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Praise the Lord for that. That's good. But be careful, because then in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, you run into some people who have to be rebaptized because they had only John's baptism. What? John's baptism? There was a difference. Remember, what was John preaching about? A coming king and a kingdom. And all of a sudden now in Acts chapter 19, Paul runs into them and says, fellas, you're a little mixed up. Actually, it wasn't even Paul. But anyway, they say, you fellas, you're a little mixed up some of Paul's disciples, really, and say, you guys need to get this straightened out. You need baptized in the name of the Lord. You you don't need John's baptism. We're not waiting for the kingdom now. The kingdom's in us. Never base church doctrine on the book of Acts then. Don't use that as your primary source of doctrine or or scripture for your doctrines. Church doctrine is based on the Pauline epistles. They're written specifically for the church. We'll talk about those in the coming days, the next time we jump onto this thing. So, there you have it. Good times, amen? amen? Man, that stuff's good. And boy, it helps you, because there's so many areas in the Word of God that are confusing. If you don't rightly divide them, you can be off target big time man somebody comes to you and says so right here it says right in the Bible that you have to be saved and baptized what do you do with that Baptist once saved always saved saying it's only the blood of Christ and it's only faith in the Lord Jesus what do you do with that well it's kind of hard to sit and spend an hour and a half and explain it to him right off the bat but the truth is is that down deep at least you have a very solid basis and a faith and you can say wait a second there's not even a Christian in the whole in the passage What in the world, man? He's preaching to the Jews, and they're waiting on their, they're hoping to convince these Jews that a Messiah is going to come back, that Jesus was Messiah, and he's going to return. They're trying to establish a kingdom. This has nothing to do with me. Man, listen, you want to talk about salvation? Let's run over to the book of Romans. Let's check it out. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this to the church today. Let's talk, and let's consider what the apostle to the Gentile has to say about this, not the apostle to the Jews. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you start to make some distinction here. And it starts to rightly divide. Rightly divide. Where's that verse? 2 Timothy 2.15, isn't it? Well, how's it start? Anybody tell me? Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You're not going to get all twisted up if you begin to rightly divide. People won't be able to get you off track confuse you it's, it's amazing now again i don't care how long you study the bible there'll be things you'll not understand doesn't matter doesn't matter who you are there's going to be things we don't understand because we're not god we didn't write this book and if we understood it all then there wouldn't be any difference between us and him but god wants us to have a good solid handle on this book because he doesn't want us getting tripped up by all the false doctrine false faith, false religions just be careful father we come to you we do thank you again for all you do